Trust the science. Relentlessly, over and over and over again, this meme has been put out, particularly by those on the secular left, those who are the most COVID concerned, and those who, generally speaking, want to bash conservatives and Republicans for not trusting the science. This has intensified during the COVID-19 crisis. But in the past two months, something incredible has happened. On the single most important issue, where science is most clearly settled about what we need to do, it is the left that is now refusing to trust the science. I'm talking, of course, about vaccination policy, in which, unfortunately, politics has now taken the place of a scientific approach to epidemiology in ways that have dramatically hampered our vaccination process in the United States. When we compare what's happening in the U.S. to Israel, we can see very clearly that the science is not being trusted. It's being pushed aside for politics. This should lead us to re-examine the entire trust the science meme that's been coming from certain quarters politically recently. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another analytical episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Five-star ratings help us, particularly on iTunes. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on the Instagram and Facebook feeds of Regent University's Robertson School. And once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. So we need to take a break from what has become an emergent series post-January 6th on the future of conservatism. And I do still want to do that post where we focus on and break down the ideas of the alt-right, but that is going to have to wait because there is an issue that we need to address right away. And that is what is currently happening with vaccines and vaccination policy. So as I mentioned in the intro, there has been this strong push toward trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, all throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And this certainly goes before that. Um, we have talked previously on this podcast a little bit about sort of the religionization of science. You'll hear people, people saying, thank science instead of thank God. People are, are sort of treating science as a unified theory of everything or uh, a source of all ultimate capital T truth. And that's never actually been what science is. Science is a tool. The scientific method is a tool for accumulating empirical knowledge. And it's a darn good tool. Science is darn good at doing what it does. And the ultimate triumph of science is the fact that less than a year ago, most of the world did not know that COVID-19 existed. Most of the world did not know about the novel coronavirus. And now we have a vaccine. An unprecedented, fast process of developing and releasing a vaccine that has a new approach to vaccination and a very promising approach. 
And so a lot of the trust the science stuff has been focused on people who are suspicious of COVID mitigation procedures. Now, it is important to keep in mind when we say this, that there is in fact no consensus about what the most appropriate and effective mitigation strategy for COVID-19 is, because this coronavirus is novel. Okay, so everything that we have in terms of uh, strategies has been based on past viruses, based on past experience. This is what we think will work. Some of them, like for example, masks, regular hand washing, maintaining social distance, those things do seem to have had a positive mitigating effect. Okay, mask usage has had a positive effect. The extent to which it has had a positive effect, I know there's a lot of debate on that. Scientists will go over extent, but we know that there is a positive effect. Lockdowns, not so sure. There is a recent study that just came out from the World Health Organization that says that maybe lockdowns didn't work. We also have some very difficult aspects of trying to figure out anything with COVID-19 because frankly, the Chinese, the, the government of the People's Republic of China is still not being forthcoming or as forthcoming as we would like about the origins of this thing. And one of the ways that you find out about a disease is studying the origins, right? So it complicates the epidemiology. It complicates the epidemiology. The World Health Organization is in fact not willing to question anything from China because they get a substantial amount of their money from China. And it, it, it is a challenge in terms of mitigation because one of the most successful examples of mitigation we have is Taiwan. And the Taiwanese essentially have followed a mitigation strategy that had it been replicated other places where possible may have been more successful. They've had one of the most successful mitigation strategies of anywhere in the world. Now, this all makes the whole trust the science thing somewhat complicated because um, a lot of the science is based on educated guesses, right? Inferring from those educated guesses. And nonetheless, trust the science in all of those areas is a reasonable thing to say. It is reasonable to say that we need to take COVID-19 seriously, that it is not just a bad flu, that the death rates are considerably higher than they would be for a typical flu, and that unlike the flu, they ex particularly COVID affects populations that are more vulnerable, that are, are have more sort of intensive healthcare needs to begin with, such that COVID is going to put more of a strain on the healthcare system than the flu did, right? So if you remember the, st the stop the spread, flatten the curve, all that kind of stuff was focused on mitigation that would essentially prevent the healthcare system from crashing. Right, that was the concern initially. That's why we had to lock down, take these draconian measures initially. And so as a result of this, it was reasonable to, to try to do the things that we did. But anybody who was saying, wait, I'm not sure that this lockdown thing still makes sense. We've gone from flatten the curve to, to stop the uh, spread, which is not what lockdown was, was designed to prevent. It was designed to slow the spread sufficiently the healthcare system could catch up. And then things changed. They changed because because politicians, whether they trust the science or not, trust the polling. And the polling said, we need to be extreme on COVID mitigation. And so anybody who said, we need to balance this with questions of economic vitality, because it's the economic vitality, it's the vitality of the economy that's going to get us out of this at the end. We're called lockdown skeptics and science deniers and all this, these kinds of things, right? So I say this not necessarily to, to relitigate that issue. Okay. I say this because I am deeply frustrated with the way in which the same people who 
mere months ago were saying, trust the science, are now taking an approach to vaccination that is completely unscientific, completely unscientific. And this approach is a focus on uh, ideas of vaccination equity, that we should vaccinate in such a way to deal with the inequities that have come about as a result of COVID-19 or systemic inequities that they believe were present before COVID-19 that have been exacerbated by COVID-19. Okay, now let's back up for just a second here. I am by no means saying that there are not systemic inequities, that some of the concerns that people have here are not valid, that if you are poor, or, or as people say, non-white in particular, that you're not at a greater risk of being affected by some aspects of COVID-19. I'm by no means saying these are not valid concerns, okay? But what you're talking about here is an ought judgment, it's a value judgment. It's a value judgment that our vaccination policy should follow certain values, certain values of equity, certain values of racial justice, certain values of, you know, related sort of critical race theory oriented left-wing causes, okay? That's no different whatsoever from the people who are saying there are some things that are more important than lockdown. We need to be worried about religious liberty. We need to be worried about our liberties and so on and so forth. It's just a different value judgment. It's not science, okay? This equity stuff is not science. It is a value judgment. It might be history. It might be social science, but it's not epidemiology, okay? I'm not an epidemiologist. You're not an epidemiologist. But I can tell you from the history of epidemiology and looking at the history of this and the way vaccination has tended to work and the way any kind of, of um, epidemic pandemic mitigation works is that your focus is not necessarily on do we like these people? Okay, your focus is on it, it's like it's like dealing with a fire. Okay, you're dealing with a fire that's actively burning right now. And the equivalent of what they're doing here is saying we need to put out the houses of the poor first before we put out the house of the rich person, right? That seems like from a distributive justice perspective, like superficially, that seems sensible. But actually the way you put a fire out is you figure out where the fire is burning the hottest and you fight the fire where it's the most aggressive, where it has the most potential to spread. Okay, this is a basic aspect of pandemic epidemiology that does not seem to have broken through. And to a certain extent, you're seeing this on the right too. I'm hearing a lot of conservatives saying, well, well, you know, America needs to get the vaccine first before we start giving it to other countries, right? Here's the thing about vaccines. Vaccines don't care, and, and viruses. Viruses don't care about race. Viruses don't care about class. Viruses don't care about socioeconomic status. And viruses don't care about borders, okay? We know now what the profile of this disease is. It hits the elderly the hardest. And by saying we need to prioritize vaccinating some group other than the elderly first, what you're essentially saying is, regardless of the science that we do know, because we do know things about this now, we're going to put our social values above science, which is fine. You can do that in a democracy, but you cannot say that and say trust the science because the science is pretty clear on this. The science is, if possible, First of all, we need to be vaccinating as many people that are in vulnerable populations as possible. Particularly, we should be vaccinating the elderly at the most rapid rate possible. Why? Because number one, they're the most likely to die of COVID. Number two, they're the most likely to develop complications of COVID that will put a greater strain on the healthcare system. Okay? And I'm going to say some things here that are just brutally 
honest about what the science says. We all want to help people who are first responders. Okay. And everybody wants to do everything we can for first responders and healthcare workers in particular, because healthcare workers have been suffering from this at high rates and it's, and they're on the front lines and emotionally, rationally, we want to do that. But here's the thing, evidence of what we have so far is not, does not show that healthcare workers are getting COVID at symptomatic rates higher than the general population. Studies do show that the elderly are. So the way to put the least amount of strain on first responders is actually to vaccinate the most vulnerable population possible as quickly as possible, thereby decreasing the likelihood that it will spread to first responders, but also decreasing the amount to which they are overworked. Because yes, them getting COVID is a problem. Our healthcare system crashing is still a problem. It is still a possibility. And so the more we take the people that are the most vulnerable and vaccinate them as quickly as possible, the better it's going to be for first responders the better it's going to be for everyone. Okay. Second aspect, people are saying we need to, to vaccinate the poor. The elderly are much more likely to be a little bit wealthier. Um, maybe the elderly skew more white, probably in the back of some of these minds, the elderly maybe skew more toward voting for Trump and we don't like those people and they're bad and January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Here's the problem with that. Okay. If you have the situation with COVID and COVID is putting a strain on the healthcare system, it is far more likely that people that are poor, that people that are on the margins, people that are African-American, Latino, Asian, whatever, you're still more likely to be negatively affected by other health things that are not COVID than you are COVID. Okay, the COVID rate is something like 2%. So the best thing we can do for those people in aggregate is get as many people who are likely to develop symptoms from COVID vaccinated as quickly as possible so we take strain off the healthcare system. This then not only allows us to treat people that are getting COVID, but it also allows us to, in effect, treat people that are getting other things that are not COVID who might get pushed to the side if we have to triage because we're dealing with a spike in COVID deaths and COVID illnesses. The best thing that we can do for everyone is to find the most vulnerable populations and vaccinate them as quickly as possible. That's the best thing that we can do. Not based on who we like or who we don't like or who's on our team or who's on our side or who's been, been hurt in the past by various things, okay? All of those are perfectly fine, valid considerations to deal with when we're talking about equities in the system, when we're not in a crisis. But when you're talking about vaccination in a pandemic, you're talking about a crisis. You're talking about fighting this in the middle of an actual active spike, which is what we have now. So you have to treat things as though it's a fire. This is not the time for us to be replacing science with political games. And this is particularly galling from the people who have said, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science until it's their political ox that's being gored. Okay, basic point number two on this. The worst thing that you can do is waste doses of vaccine. Okay, even if you have to vaccinate people who are in a very low probability, Every person who gets vaccinated is one more person who cannot spread the virus, okay? That's one more person who is immune. That's one more person who won't give COVID to other people if they've been vaccinated. So the worst thing that you can do with that is because you don't have enough people that fall into whatever category you've decided should get this first, you're going to waste it. It's like, oh, we've got some fire extinguisher fluid over here. We've got a couple fire extinguishers, but the wrong per type of person 
is is potentially has is at risk of, of fire, right? We've got some fireproof clothing. And so instead of giving it to this bird, we're going to hold on to it until we can, you know, and it's going to go bad, right? There's no analogy that's perfect. The fire analogy is starting to break down here. I'm, I'm going to back off the fire analogy, but you get the point. Okay, the worst thing that you can do is waste this. All right. And so what we've seen in a lot of these states in the U.S. is they're prioritizing people who are not the highest risk. They're prioritizing people who we feel like should be the most protected, right? So we're making feeling judgments. And I get, I think a lot of those feelings are perfectly understand. We want to protect first responders. We don't want COVID to cause more inequities, to, to make issues of racial injustice worse and all that. I get all of that. I'm sympathetic to all of that. I get that, that people have feelings about it. But the reality is this is not the time for that. Vaccination is not the time for that. Vaccination is the time for let's get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible, prioritizing the most high-risk groups, but certainly not wasting vaccines. Okay? One of the common things that I hear from people is, well, this person got vaccinated before this other person, and that's not fair. Yes, and in an ideal world, you're right. But the reality is, we just need more people to get vaccinated. We need as many people to get vaccinated as possible, as quickly as possible. Okay? This is the system that the Israelis have used. I mentioned Israel at the beginning of this. Okay. Israel has digitized their healthcare system to a, an unprecedented degree. And they've got a lot of local clinics that they're using to disperse the vaccine. We don't have that infrastructure. Okay. So I get that we're not going to get an outcome that's as good as what Israel gets. But yes, they have, they have prioritization. But at the end of the day, when they're closing up shop in those local clinics, if they've got vaccines left, they're pulling people in off from the street and sticking them in the arm if they want a vaccine. And then scheduling a follow-up appointment for them a month later. There's a story that I read on Twitter recently about some nurses in Israel, finished up for the day, vaccinated a bunch of people. They had some leftover. They walk outside and there's a pizza guy walking by. And one of the nurses yells out, hey, pizza guy, you want a vaccine? Boom. He comes in, gets vaccinated, gets a follow-up appointment. You got one more person who's then added to immunity, right? You cannot waste this stuff. It's not like they're not going to make more, but you, you, there's, what's the point? It's a, it's, it makes no sense. If you have some leftover, give it to people. Give it to people regardless of who they are, regardless of whether they pay their taxes, regardless of whether they're, you know, where they come from, whether they fall into the right category. It doesn't matter. Okay, we want to take this and impose our political judgments and our political value judgments onto that. I get that. We want to politicize everything. This is not the time. Okay, this is really the time for getting this out as quickly as possible. Because the more people that get this vaccination as quickly as possible, the more it benefits everyone. That is, in fact, how the science works on this. So why are we not following the science? Because I don't think most people actually believe in science. I think most people like the idea of science, particularly if science can be a, a cudgel to beat their political opponents with. Okay, and the reality is, science is science. Hard sciences I'm talking about here. I'm talking about, you know, biology, epidemiology. I'm talking about physics, chemistry, the hard sciences, where you have empirical data that is detailed, that is accurate, that is verifiable, but that is limited to specific fields. Okay, and we need to disaggregate this from a lot of people who, like myself, are social scientists. Okay, our data is not as good. Our data is not as hard. I hate to say this, and political scientists, my fellow political scientists will get very nervous when I say things like this, but it's, it's the fact. It's a fact. We don't know as much about our field as social scientists, as hard scientists do about theirs, as biologists and chemists and physicists and those type of people do about theirs. 
And that goes in the public health field too. Epidemiologists know a lot of stuff. A lot of these sociology of public health stuff, they're throwing darts at a dartboard. They have no idea what they're talking about. Because sociology is a science, if you can even call it that, that's in its infancy. And because social sciences have become very subject to political pressure, to political activism, to the idea that you, you, you have to bring value judgments into things, right? Now, I personally think that if you're studying things like politics, you can't do it free of normal normative value judgments. I, I don't think you can have a value-free political science, which makes it different than the hard sciences. Because I don't, I don't think that when you're talking about biology, when you're talking about chemistry, when you're talking about physics, that there is a left-wing or a right-wing biology, a left-wing or a right-wing chemistry, a left-wing or a right-wing physics. Okay? Atoms, cells, nuclei, laws of motion don't care about our politics. They carry on sublimely uninterested in whether Trump or Biden is president. And whether Trump or Biden is president is not going to change those underlying realities. They exist as hard, verifiable, empirical data. Except for maybe quantum stuff. We're not getting into this, nerds. Okay? The things that are both and. Yeah, we're not, we're not even going to touch that here. <laughs> okay? That's way too much math for, for this guy who did uh, historical methods in, in grad school. So the reality is, though... Science can be weaponized for politics. And this is something that goes back a long time of people who essentially thought that they could turn politics into chemistry. Really, engineering is, is the field that they were drawing on. And in so doing, build a better society. And that has been a goal of uh, many modern political scientists since the inception of the discipline. It's not really working. People are, are far more stubborn and far less predictable than atoms and quarks and nuclei and all of those uh, bits that make up the hard sciences. You just can't do it. And yet we keep trying, and we keep trying to put a patina of science over what are essentially normative value judgments. And so part of the problem is people cannot distinguish what is actual science from what is, in fact, politics. So yes, you can trust the science. The reason you can trust the science is because if you ask a scientist a question and a scientist doesn't know the answer, they'll say, I don't know. That's how you know a scientist versus someone who is, is trying to, in politics. Someone in politics who's, who's using science for political ends will never tell you, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Politicians very rarely will admit not knowing things. It's probably one of the weaknesses of our current political moment, but that's a whole broader conversation. Right? But a scientist will tell you that there are things that he or she does not know. And that's why you can trust them. Right? When they say they're an expert in their field, they will tell you. And if they're not an expert in, their, in a field, they'll say, you know what, I'm not an expert in this field. We know a lot about how vaccines should be distributed. We can look at a case study right now of a small country, Israel, that has distributed vaccines to the point where a country of 9 million makes up 10% of the vaccines that have been administered in the world to this point. 10% of all vaccines that have been administered have been administered in Israel. Because they are prioritizing getting the most vulnerable people vaccinated first and not wasting vaccine. Those, it, it's simple. It's not hard. It's not political. It's not complicated. Why can't we do it? Because people want to do other things. 
because people want to use vaccination to score other points in politics, because we have a political class in this country that is incapable of thinking of pizza delivery or something, you know, as mundane as that, let alone a vaccination program in terms that are not political. In trying to professionalize politics, we have essentially politicized the professions. This is my concern. In trying to professionalize politics, turn politics into something that is a, a mechanistic process that produces scientific outcomes. In trying to create a science that explains politics, the only thing that we've done is politicized science. And it's not good. And it's led to a lot of the negative outcomes that have come. It has led to half the country not trusting science because science has been associated with basically anything that doesn't match up with their, their worldview is seen as quote-unquote science. Trademark. And then you come back and you tell them things that are actually science and they don't believe you and you're surprised. Maybe if you hadn't been trying to use science as a political cudgel for the past 30 or 40 years, you wouldn't have that problem. And some of the knuckleheadery comes comes in on, on the people who are, are, you know, on the faith side, who are talking about an antipathy between faith and science. Yes, faith and science have never been able to go together. Christianity and, and science, you know, and, and Darwinism, all these things, they, they don't match, except for the fact that science was literally invented in Christian monasteries. It was invented by Christians. It was patronized by the church. It was created by Catholic monks and Protestant universities. If it wasn't for Christianity, there would be no science. So it, it is inexplicable to me that Christians have ceded the high ground on this and have pretended that science is something that has nothing to do with faith, with Christianity. It's false. A little bit beside the point. But anyway, the point being, we cannot politicize science. We first of all understand what science is. It is, it is a tool that produces, reliably, effectively, consistently produces empirically verifiable information on discrete subjects that can make people's lives better if we use it properly. But if we misuse it, if we politicize it, if we try to use science to do things that it's not designed for, you're going to break it. <laughs> you break it. You end up eroding trust in expertise. You end up turning science into a political enterprise. And science cannot be kept purely free of politics. I understand this fact. I'm, I, I study politics for a living. I get how that works. There's always going to be that when it, when it comes to research funding and, and all of that. But you want it to be affecting things as little as possible. Okay? The personality cult around Anthony Fauci is, is a side note. It's, it's weird. I don't think Fauci's a bad guy. I think he's a doctor who's in his 80s who's a doctor. I don't know if you know this about doctors, and I love them. God bless them, medical doctors. They're not always necessarily the people you want in front of the camera. Okay, there's a reason that we joke about doctors in bedside manner and not being able to talk to, to people, right? This is why God created nurses. Hat tip to all you nurses out there. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, so taking this guy, putting him in front of committee hearings, having him try to talk to politicians, having him try to play the political game, do all these things, you know, making him a touchdown in the culture war, is really not his job. It's not what he should be doing. And we should not be putting the entire policy architecture of our response to this onto people whose background is epidemiology. Because they can, and, and he's even said this several times, Fauci, Dr. Fauci has, 
that like, look, I'm an epidemiologist. I'm not an economist. I can't tell you what we need to do for, for economics. I can tell you the things that might work from an epidemiological perspective. By the way, then there's also a fencing the table aspect that comes in, right? You're giving people restrictions that goes beyond what you know they actually need to stay safe. Hoping, knowing people well enough to know that they're going to push the boundaries a little bit, right? So this is kind of the way the doctor operates, oftentimes, is they will tell you things that are, in fact, stricter than what is absolutely required, knowing that you're not going to be able to do that, but that you'll still be in the safe zone, okay? I feel like doctors kind of get this, and patients kind of get this, and politicians sort of don't, because there is a political incentive in COVID performativity. And that goes both directions, right? Performative performativity, if you can't make me wear a mask, no, we can't make you wear a mask, you knucklehead, but if it's going to stop you from getting COVID, you probably should. Or if it's going to stop somebody else from getting it, you probably should. Is it really an infringement on your personal liberty? It certainly is an infringement on, you know, it's not comfortable. It's not great. Nobody likes it. But if it allows you to go out and go and, and you know, go to businesses, do the things that you want to do, have more of a normal life. Is that a trade-off worth making? On the other hand, people wearing masks outside is performative. Wearing masks when you're alone in your car, performative. These super hyper intense restrictions, performative, not effective. Okay. It's not how the disease works. You're not going to get COVID if you're sitting alone in your car without a mask on. It's very rare that you'll get COVID if you're, you know, walking around outside without a mask on. And so it becomes like almost a performative form of kosher, right? Um, you know, the, the New Testament talks about certain Pharisees who were being very performative in their, their public piety. Look how much more pious I am than you, right? And you see that both on sort of the, the pro-COVID restriction and anti-COVID restriction side. And in the midst of all that, it's very hard to get what the actual science is saying. What's my vaccination plan if I had one? If I were king for a day and they said, okay, Nolte, you're in charge. How are we going to vaccinate people? Number one, you start with the elderly. You get as many of them vaccinated as quickly as possible. You do it through wherever they would normally get their flu shot. And you automate it as much as possible. You make it as easy as possible. By the way, this is something that we should have been starting to build the infrastructure on or that states should have been starting to build the infrastructure on last May. We knew we were going to need a massive, rapid vas vaccination push last May. We should have been planning for this. We should have been building the infrastructure. We should have been thinking about how we were going to deliver this most effectively and going from there. Okay. Second, after, you know, just generally the you know, you move in, in stages through the elderly population. If you're going to prioritize any group of people, it should be people that are living in institutions, institutions where they are tightly packed in and where there is potentially an issue with ventilation. So nursing homes, hospitals, group homes, and yes, uh, homeless shelters and prisons. Okay, this was a big controversial one too for more some folks on the right. Why are we vaccinating prisoners first? Well, because there's a very strong correlation between prisons and COVID outbreaks. Where there are large-scale prisons, those jurisdictions tend to have high rates of COVID. You, you treat the fire where it's found, okay? You treat the fire where it exists. And so doing, you keep it from spreading to the areas around that, 
around the prison, to the prison guards, to the people who have other business. You know, there's, there's, it's, these are hubs of things coming in, things going out that could be vectors for this, right? So we've seen gen pop cases come in area, uh, spike in areas where there's prisons, right? So you, you deal with that. We're going to need to send large, substantial doses of vaccination to poor countries. Okay, we need to be prepared for this. And this is where I'm talking to people on the right now, not on the left. Okay, yes, the left is being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs right now about how they want to handle this and trying to get equity into the process, right? But nationalism doesn't have any place either in terms of vaccination strategy because pandemics do not respect borders. And if we leave this to fester and say, well, these other countries, you know, they screwed up. They should have been rich or whatever. They don't have their vaccine together. No, that's not how this works because then it could be a threat still to the United States. It's going to be a while, if ever, before you get everybody in the U.S. vaccinated. We need to kill this thing worldwide, which means that we should be prepared to using our budget, using our taxpayer dollars, we're going to have to vaccinate people in large swaths of the rest of the world so that this never comes back again. We also need to look at public health in the developing world and public health outcomes because we, we will need to come up with better tracking. This time it was China. Very easily we could have seen a pandemic outbreak in some other country in the developing world that can spread and hit us. We know this is a thing now. Okay, so we cannot pretend that public health outcomes in the, in the developing world don't affect us here in the United States because we've just seen that they can. Now to a degree, I think it's fair to say that this was a result of Chinese government malfeasance. Next time it might not be. And where you have poor governance, low capacity, poor health outcomes in the developing world, you have the possibility that something goes oopsie and goes viral. And this could have been an accident. Even if you think COVID wasn't, the next one could be. And we need to be thinking about the next one, right? So Americans like to complain about foreign aid more than anything else. But you know what foreign aid is cheaper than? First of all, war. <laughs> if you can promote democracy without going to war in a country, it's always cheaper, okay? If you're looking at your taxpayer dollars. And when that country is better off, you're better off because it doesn't come back to bite you that way, right? We learned that on 9-11. And then also global pandemics. It's a globalized world. The stuff that you make is made, the stuff that you buy is made in other parts of the world. There's trade, there's movement of goods, there's movement of people across borders. You're never going to be able to stop that completely without crashing the economy. So we need to be looking at public health outcomes because aid to developing countries in those fields is certainly cheaper than another pandemic. This pandemic is going to cost us more, I would guess, when all is said and done than the U.S. has ever spent on foreign aid in the history of foreign aid programs, period. It's going to be that expensive when we get done with all the stimulus, when we look at all the economic impact, all the businesses lost, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention lives lost. Okay. And so this is another area in which, again, if we had not politicized science, if we had not politicized some of these economic decisions, we could have these conversations. And I'm not advocating that we necessarily ditch all the priorities of the left because they've made a hash of science. You know, we do need to look at health disparities, health inequities, all these types of things. 
because what we just said about developing countries goes double for the poor in the United States. That certainly, some, something certainly could be a, a potential problem there. So we, we have to have better health outcomes, period, across the board, at home too. But there's a time and a place to have those conversations, right? So now we're talking about an after the fire is put out conversation. How do we prevent fire in the first place? We're talking about forest management. We're talking about building codes. We're talking about all those things. Right now, those are good conversations to have. They're not the conversations you have when firefighters are pulling up to the fire with wagons full of water saying, where do, where do I put the hose? And that's where we are now. Okay, and so the problem is we're not having the right conversation. We are not focusing where we need to be focused. And where we need to be focused is how do we get rid of COVID in the most efficient way possible? Not how do we make sure that people that I think have gotten the short end of the stick get vaccinated first. I know it's tempting. I understand the emotions behind it. But there's a time and a place for this, and this is not the time and place. Okay, that's going to be about a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on all of the places I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. My suspicion is that the next episode will focus on some of the continued conversation that's that's going on on the right. But I'm not positive on that yet because things keep happening. We will come back to that. We will come back to a, a more detailed, full-spectrum analysis of the alt-right, where it is, the impact that I think it's had. There have been some really good recent articles, podcasts, etc., on that from, from Christian sources. I would commend to you the work of Andrew Walker, who's the guy I don't know but I respect, and Mark Tooley, who's a guy that I do know and also respect. They both have written some interesting things that are valuable for us to take on board from a Christian perspective. And we're going to talk about more sort of how Christians should respond to some of this, because I think there needs to be a podcast that is looking at this from a more explicit faith component. But I also, you know, like I said, things, things are continuing to happen. Israel is getting set for yet another election. We'll spend some time talking about that. Virginia, if you live in the state of Virginia, is gearing up for elections in fall of 2021, and they're going to be totally insane particularly the gubernatorial primary on the Democratic side, is going to be nuts. So we'll have some people on to talk about that. Things are still moving. Things are still happening. We'll have an entire new Biden administration to talk about as, as we start to see what some of their policies are going to be and some of their approaches. And we will continue to talk about that. And of course, I want to try to continue to feature the work of RSG students and others connected with RSG, maybe some of our alums in the year ahead. That's something that I'm hoping that we can do as well. So that's just kind of a, a short overview of where we're, we're going in the future. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. I will keep doing this as long as they let me here at the, the Robertson School of Government. So until they come to their senses and say, Dr. Nolte, you need to stop recording these podcasts. I will be here doing this because it is fun and I hope it is informative for some folks out there. And so with that being said, for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. <music>